Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will continue in our study of 1 John. Let's pray. Father, it is with a great sense of humble joy that we bow our knees before You this morning to worship You. Lord, I pray that You would give us grace as a church, that each of us would be, like these many confusing names in the New Testament, we would be faithful workers. Faithful workers in and for the kingdom of God. That we would be a group of people who love one another and serve one another and work hard for one another and minister for the glory of the Lord. I pray that you would help us as a church to reach out to our community. There are people around us who are perishing. We want to rescue the perishing. We want to bring them the gospel of Jesus, the only means by which they might be saved, in hopes that by grace they would trust and obey the Savior. I pray that each of us would grow in grace, that each of us would make progress and joy in the faith, that we would all be conformed ever increasingly to the image of our beloved Savior. Pray for all of us here who might maybe struggling with a difficult season of life, struggling with an illness, suffering, a loss of a loved one, or whatever the case may be, that you would comfort your people, that you would encourage your people, that you would build up your people, and that you would now meet with us as we open the Scripture. That you would help us, Lord, to understand your Word. Give us wisdom and illumination. Keep us from straying from Your commandments, but incline our heart to keep Your Word that we might reflect the image of the God who has made us. Be with us now, we pray, for Your glory. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be yet again in 1 John, the book of 1 John. And this morning we'll yet again be in verses 1-4. through 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. But before we read uh, our text, let me yet again remind us of some of the context. 1 John was written by the Apostle John from Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor around AD 80-95 or so, the end of the first century. And John wrote the book because of a group of false teachers that were seeking to deceive the believers of Asia Minor. Uh, There was a group of false teachers trying to deceive them. And this false teaching, this heresy with which they've been associated with, has become known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism. The Gnostics were Greek philosophical dualists. They said that matter is evil, but spirit is good. Matter is evil, and spirit is good. And so they denied that Christ was fully God and fully man. They denied the reality of divine creation. God is transcendent light and pure spirit. There's no way a good God would make an evil material world. So that led them to postulate that a series of emanations or lesser gods have come from the true God. Some of them are good gods and some of them are evil. And it's one of the evil gods whom they termed the demiurge that made the world. And Jesus is not fully God nor is He fully man. He's just one of these lesser gods that have come forth from the true God. And He's not really a man either. He just seemed to be a man. He just appeared to be a man, like a phantom or a ghost. He's a God, a good God, but He's merely a God nonetheless. And He just seemed to be a man. And He came not to die for sinners on the cross and take away sin, but He came to give this mystical, secret knowledge by which we could escape the material world. So they denied the truth about Christ. They denied the truth about sin. They denied the truth about the Gospel, the truth about salvation. In a word, they presented a counterfeit version of Christianity. A false form of Christianity. They redefined it. They made up their own version. 
So John then writes to refute their lies and to uphold the truth for these believers at Asia Minor. And as he does so, he lays out a series of tests. A series of tests by which one can distinguish between true Christianity and false Christianity. A true believer from a false believer. The key verse is found in chapter 5. In 1 John 5.13, John writes this, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's purpose for writing the book is Christian assurance. He wants to give the believers to whom he writes confidence in the reality of their faith and the genuineness of their salvation. And that's important, isn't it? None of us like to gamble enough to gamble with our eternity, right? How many of us like to gamble here? How many of us are willing to gamble away our home and our family? I know there are a few of us here. But a majority of us aren't willing to do that. But surely there's no one here today willing to gamble with His eternity, willing to jump out into the dark forever and ever, not knowing whether or not he or she is saved. Well, you got rid of two of your kids, so... That's true. <laughs> we, we gambled away the children, as Patty said. <laughs> so none of us want to do that. We want assurance. So John is going to provide assurance for his readers by giving them three tests over and over again. I told you, 1 John is very cyclical, very circular. Paul wrote very linearly. He wrote systematically. He wrote very logically. John just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. It's like a broken record. But each time, he says it with new and fresh ways and goes deeper and deeper and deeper. What are those three tests? The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves in truth. Do you want to know if you're a Christian? Do you want to know if you're saved? Do you want to know if you're going to heaven? Examine yourself in the light of these tests. If you pass the test, praise God, you're a believer. If you fail the test, then you have every reason to be afraid. You need to repent and believe. So three tests. And John begins with the doctrinal test. The Christological test. The true believer believes the truth about Christ. That's where... It begins. And that's where our text comes in this morning. The first four verses of 1 John form what we might call the introduction, the prologue, the preface to the epistle. And in this introduction, John summarizes the apostolic message. We see John's proclamation. His proclamation. And in verses 1-2, to we see the subject of his proclamation, which is to answer the question, who does John proclaim? And in verses 3-4, to we see the purposes of his proclamation, which is to answer the question, why does John proclaim? Last week, we looked at the first two verses, and we considered the who of his proclamation, the subject. And that is verse 1, right? Concerning the Word of life, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. He was the subject of John's proclamation. And we saw there the two distinct natures of Christ. His eternal deity and His historical humanity. That is to say, Jesus is fully God and He is fully man. He is the God-man. But now, this morning in verses 3-4, to which will be the subject of our attention for today, we're going to see the purposes of John's proclamation. Why 
does John proclaim? So with that said, let me read our text for us this morning. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Now there are a few key words or phrases that demand our attention here. The first word is that of word proclaim. Proclaim. We see it in verse 2. Look at verse 2. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you. And again in verse 3. Look at verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So this is about John's proclamation. John begins the letter by informing us of his proclamation, giving us a summary of the apostolic message. But another key phrase that demands our attention is the phrase, so that. So that. Look at verse 3 again. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that. And then again in verse 4. These things we write, so that. These two words translate the singular Greek word henna. Henna. It's a henna purpose clause. It's the word in the Greek that expresses purpose. John is saying, these are the purposes for which I am proclaiming Christ. These are the reasons for which I am writing to you. So this then tells us of the purposes of John's proclamation. And this is important and very relevant for us because all of us are called to proclaim Christ. All Christians are called to be witnesses for Jesus. All of us are called to the work of evangelism. The work of evangelism. In Matthew 28, the Lord Jesus gave us what is commonly known as the Great Commission. And we're all familiar with those words, aren't we? Starting in verse 19, we read this. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now it's obvious that this mission isn't just for the apostles, because of both its scope and its duration. Its scope, all nations, its duration until the end of the age. The apostles did not make disciples of every nation, nor did they make it to the end of the age. And therefore, this mission has to be for more than just the apostles. It is the mission of the entire church. This is my mission and your mission if you're a believer. We're all called to fulfill the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read another summary statement of the Great Commission. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. In other words, one of the primary reasons for which we receive the Holy Spirit is to be empowered to be Christ's witnesses. So if you have the Holy Spirit, 
And if you're a believer, you do. Then you have the power and the calling to be a witness for Christ. You have all you need to be a witness for Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, we read another one of those statements. Paul says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is to say, if you have been reconciled to God, it is your responsibility to tell others how they likewise can be reconciled to God. If you have been saved, it is your job to tell others how they also can be saved. If you've been reconciled, you have the ministry of reconciliation. In the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Did you get that? You are saved to proclaim. You've been called out of darkness that you might proclaim the excellencies and the glories of Jesus in the Gospel. If you're a believer, that is one of the purposes for which you have been saved. That you might be a means by which others are saved. You've been saved that you might be on mission with Jesus, who according to Luke 19.10 came to seek and to save that which was lost. We're to be on mission with our Savior. So all Christians are called to preach the Gospel. All of us are called to proclaim Christ. But why? Why? What motivates us to evangelize? What should move us to proclaim Christ? Or to put it another way, what are the purposes for which we should proclaim Christ? What do we hope to see accomplished? Well, we're going to find the answer to that this morning in our text. Because John delineates the two purposes of his proclamation, and these should be the purposes of our proclamation as well. What are John's purposes? Two purposes. Mutual fellowship and mutual joy. Mutual fellowship and mutual joy. So let's begin by looking at the first purpose here. Number one, mutual fellowship. Look at verse 3. What we have seen and heard... We proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We proclaim to you. What is it that John saw and heard? We talked about that last week, right? The Word of Life, the Lord Jesus, the God-Man. He became incarnate. He became visible, phanerao. He was manifest, made visible so that John and the apostles could see Him and hear Him and touch Him. The historical reality of the incarnation, God becoming a man in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus then was the subject of John's proclamation. And Jesus is always the subject of any faithful gospel proclamation. In Romans 16.25, the word gospel is used synonymously with the preaching of Jesus Christ. To preach the gospel is to preach Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4.5, Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.28, he says, We proclaim Him that is Christ. We proclaim Him. 
So if someone's not preaching Jesus, are they preaching the gospel? No. You get these Westboro Baptists and these Pelagians on the streets with their signs and their sandwich billboards, and they say things like, God hates fags, and that's all they talk about. Nothing about Jesus, nothing about the glory of Christ. They are not preaching the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. John Gill puts it this way, the person and offices of Christ are the sum and substance of the Gospel ministry. If you're not preaching Christ, you're not preaching the Gospel at all. Charles Spurgeon had a word for preachers. He says, no Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and don't preach again until you have something to preach about. Christ. Christ. We're a people fixated on the glory of Christ. Christ is the subject of all true faithful gospel proclamation. We preach His person and His work. We preach that He's fully God and fully man. That He lived a sinless life and thus secured for us a perfect righteousness. He died a bloody, horrific death on the cross as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, satisfying the justice of God against us, and securing for us forgiveness and everlasting righteousness. He's been raised from the dead. He's been exalted on high to the right hand of the Father where He today intercedes for His people and He will come again in judgment. And salvation is by faith and faith alone in Christ alone. That is the subject of our message. That is what the apostles proclaim. We proclaim Christ, John says. Now notice that word we. We proclaim. Again, it's a plural pronoun. It's an apostolic we. That is to say, it refers to John and the other apostles. They were the ones who saw Him, heard Him, touched Him. They were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. And then He says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. John and the other apostles couldn't help but proclaim Christ. They couldn't stop preaching about Christ. Surely John would agree with the words of Peter in Acts chapter 4 when Peter says, We can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. We can't stop preaching Christ. We have to obey God rather than men, government, because we can't stop talking about Jesus. So note then, that those who have truly and savingly experienced fellowship with Christ, they can't help but to speak about Christ. They can't stop talking about Him. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, Once you have experienced this exciting life that is real, you will want to share it with other people just as John wanted to declare it to all his readers in the first century. Can you say that? Do you long to talk about Christ? Are you so moved by your own communion with Jesus that you can't stop talking about Him? That's the way it ought to be. Those who have experienced the glory of Christ and the grace of salvation ought to be constantly talking about it to others. May it never be that we would ever stop talking about the One who saved us from our sin. So John says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. And again, according to verse 4, this proclamation comes in the form of a writing, in the form of this letter. John's proclamation is coming to the believers of Asia Minor and by way of extension to us this morning through this written letter. So John proclaims Christ, but why? What are the purposes? Look at verse 3. The end of verse 3. 
so that henna, for this reason, for this purpose, so that you too might have fellowship with us. Why is John proclaiming Christ? Mutual fellowship. He wants to bring everyone into this fellowship. Not only his original readers, but all of us. John wants us to be brought into this fellowship with him and the other apostles. Now what is he talking about? What is this fellowship? We don't use words like that often when we talk about salvation. And when we talk about fellowship, we're talking about the fellowship hall, right? We're talking about where we gather together and we eat and drink and talk about sports and then go home after church, right? That's fellowship. But what is John talking about? It's the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, very rich New Testament term. It means partnership, companionship, sharing. It refers to those who are partners. Spiritual partnership. It's the fact that we all share a common life. We share eternal life, divine life in Christ. All of us possess the same resources and the same life and the same Savior. And therefore, we are in a fellowship. Now, let me give you quickly kind of a biblical, theological understanding of this word. I'm convinced that this word koinonia, fellowship, has both a positional sense to it as well as a practical sense. A positional sense and a practical sense. And what I mean by that is this. There is a sense in which all believers are permanently in fellowship with God. That's our position. That's our status. That is to say, we are in a saving relationship with God through faith and in union with Jesus Christ. In that sense of the word, there's no getting out of the fellowship. It's once and for all. You're in. No getting out. Sorry, you signed the contract, you can't get out, right? John's going to argue later that if you go out of the fellowship, it's because you were never in it to begin with. 1 John 2.19 To be in this fellowship is permanent. To be in fellowship with God and His people. <clears throat> However, there's also a sense in which, in which we must practically engage in fellowship. We need to devote ourselves to fellowship. We need to spend time with the Lord in prayer and meditation upon the Word. We need to spend time with one another as a church. Come together and fellowship. So in the first sense of the word, even when we're not faithful to make it to church on Sunday, even when we're out of church for several weeks, we're still in the fellowship. To be out of the fellowship is to be unsaved. But then in the practical sense of the word, there are times when we don't fellowship with people the way we ought to. We're not communing with God's people the way we should. So let me kind of prove this to you. In John 17.3, Jesus says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So according to Jesus, eternal life, salvation, is knowing God and knowing Christ. It is to be in fellowship with the Father and His Son. So that is what it means to be saved. So every believer, regardless of what's happening practically in their life, if they're true believers, they're always in this saving relationship with God through Jesus and one with the people of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul speaks of the Corinthian salvation like this. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So salvation is to be sovereignly and effectually drawn into fellowship with Christ, to know Christ, 
To be in a relationship with Christ. That's what it means to be saved. And in this positional fellowship or union with Christ, we're in union with one another. John says this fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, but it's also with us. With John and the other apostles and all Christians. All Christians. The Apostle Paul told the Romans that we're baptized by one Spirit into one body and thus we're individually members of one another. So if you don't like your neighbor, if you don't like your brother and sister in Christ, too bad. You're attached to them forever, in a sense. You can't get out of it. You're in union with Christ and His church forever. That is what we call the universal church or the invisible church. This mystical, spiritual union with God and His people. So there's no getting out of that. Once saved, always saved. If you're saved, you're always saved. And if you leave the fellowship, it's because you never were a part of it to begin with. And that's the idea John is talking about here. That's what he's conveying here. He's saying, I'm proclaiming Christ because I want you to be saved and I want you to know that you're saved. I want you to be brought into this saving fellowship with the triune God. That's what John's talking about. However, in large part, the Christian life is about becoming in practice what we already are in position. We're already in this fellowship, and yet we need to devote ourselves to fellowship. Right? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Luke records the devotions of the first church, and he says they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. That is to say they were meeting together, taking their meals together, spending time around the Word together, and they were involved in one another's life. So we need to do that too. In fact, John's going to make the point throughout the letter that one evidence that you're in the fellowship is that you love God's people. And if you love God's people, you're going to want to spend time with them. You don't come to church on Sunday because you want to get a check in the box. You don't come to the church on the Lord's Day and gather with the people of God because you're obligated. Though you are, God commands you. But you do it because you love God and you love the people of God. And if you love the people of God, you're going to be where they are. You're going to want to be in fellowship. Let me give you an illustration of the difference here between this positional and practical fellowship. Take the word relationship. You know, I could be at the doctor's office with my father, my dad, and the doctor might ask him, what is your relationship to the patient? And he's going to say, I'm his father. That is a reference to the objective, unchanging reality that he's my father. That is his relationship and status. He's my father. But then he might say something like this. How do you and your dad get along? How do you relate to one another? How's your relationship? By that he's referring not to the objective reality that he's my father, but to the subjective experiential reality of how we get along. And how we get along might not always be reflective of our relationship, right? So you have this permanent relationship, and yet you have this reality in the way, the sense in, in, in which we relate to one another. So it is with this word fellowship. All believers are in fellowship with God and Christ and one another, and now we need to express that reality by spending time together around the Word. So we should love the people of God, shouldn't we? Do you love the people of God? Maybe the reason it's so hard to make, and I, I get it, I, I'm late in the morning sometimes like I was this morning, right? We, we all go through that, but maybe the reason it's so hard to come to church consistently is because we don't love the people of God. Christianity is not about trying to avoid all the bad things that you love and doing all the boring things that you hate because you're supposed to do it. 
if that's what that's you, you're not a Christian. The problem is you've not been born again. Your heart is still set up on the world. Believers love what God loves, hate what God hates, and that's why they come to church because they love the people of God. So there's a positional fellowship and a practical fellowship. But John here is talking about this positional reality. He's proclaiming Christ so that you might come to have fellowship with us. That you might come in to our experience. We've experienced Christ with our physical senses and now we want you to come and experience Him with your spiritual senses. Come to know Him. Come to have salvation in Him. Come to have assurance in Him. That's what John's talking about. So John proclaims Christ because he wants to see people saved. Right? He wants people to be brought into this fellowship. And that should drive us to do evangelism. Why should you go preach the gospel to your neighbor and your co-worker? Because you want them to escape hell and come to know God. You want them to be in this fellowship. If you've experienced the glorious grace of fellowship with God, you want other people to know this wonderful experience. How wicked of a person must you be to have the cure for cancer and tell no one about it? Be a wicked person, a hateful person. How much more then for those who have the cure for eternal death, namely the gospel, and yet tell no one about it? You have a glorious message. Charles Spurgeon very forcefully put it this way, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself, be sure of that. If you don't long to see others come into the fellowship, maybe there's something wrong with your heart. Very sobering words from the prince of preachers. Again, Spurgeon says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and that not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Very vivid language by Spurgeon. You're saved. You should want others to be saved. And you should be willing to crawl on broken glass around the world with this Gospel if that's what it takes. Is that your attitude, brothers and sisters? Do you love the lost? Do you long to see people escape the wrath of God and come to know God through Christ? That should be our desire. So John proclaimed Christ so that others would come into this fellowship. But then he goes on to define that fellowship. He says it's fellowship with us, right? We're in union with one another as a church. But he says it's fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John was a Trinitarian. John believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. He believed, and you can read his gospel if you don't believe me, right? The Word is with God, and yet somehow He is God. He's distinct from God. He is God. There's multiple persons that are God. But how many gods are there? Three? No, one. That's Trinitarianism. John was a Trinitarian. And John is saying to be saved is to be in a saving relationship with the triune God. What a glorious reality. He talks about fellowship with the Father and the Son here. 2 Corinthians 13.14, he talks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So we're in fellowship with all three persons of the Trinity. The Father loves you. You're in communion with God the Father. 
The Lord Jesus loves you. He gave Himself up for you. You're in a saving communion with the God-man, the Lord Jesus. And this fellowship with the Father is only through the Son, right? Can you come to know God apart from Christ? No, Jesus says what? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but what? Through me. The only way to have fellowship with the Father is through faith in the Son. If you don't have the Son, you do not have the life. Because it's found only in Christ. He alone died to save sinners from the wrath of God. He alone brings sinners into the presence of God. There's no other way to heaven but through Christ. So if you're here this morning and you haven't repented and you haven't believed in Christ, I would plead with you to do so today. Because if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, you do not have a saving relationship with God. You're an enemy of God and you're under the wrath of God. At this very moment, the God who made the Son His wrath abides upon you at every moment of every day. So I would plead with you today, if you're not a Christian, come to Christ. Repent. Believe upon Christ. And you'll have fellowship with God. So Christ alone. That's the first purpose. To bring people into a saving relationship with God through Jesus. The Gnostics were trying to convince the believers of Asia Minor that they had it all wrong. John says no. The Gnostics are the ones that are wrong. You're in the true fellowship. You have the true Son, the true biblical Jesus, and therefore you have the life. You're in the fellowship. So purpose number one, mutual fellowship. But now purpose number two. The second purpose of John's proclamation is mutual joy. Look at verse four. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete John's writing, that's the way his proclamation comes, is through the letter. And these things certainly includes all of 1 John, but with a specific emphasis on what he just said about the incarnation of Christ. I'm preaching Christ to you. I'm telling you about the incarnation and the deity and humanity of Christ so that our joy would be made complete. Now, it must be noted that there is a textual variant here. The first one that noticed that is going to be Miss Patty. If you have the King James Version, your text here says, your joy. If you have the NASB, it says, our joy. Which one is it? The issue is, we don't have any of the original manuscripts, or autographs, right? We call them the autographs, the self-writings. We don't have any of the original documents that John wrote or Paul wrote. We have what we call the manuscripts, the copies of the original. And we have... Over 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts of the New Testament. And around 25,000 in all languages. And though they do disagree from time to time because of scribal errors and things like that, they astoundingly agree about 90% of the time. And in that 10% of disagreement, none of it ever has any serious bearing on theological or historical truth. We have the real text. The real text has been reconstructed for us. God has preserved His Word. We have it. But we have these minor variants. We've got to figure out which one it is. So the variant here is in verse 4, and it has to do with whose joy. Is it your joy, or is it our joy? I'm convinced that the original text said our joy, because a great majority of the older manuscripts say that. But it doesn't really matter, and let me show you why. 
When we use the word hour, we could be using an inclusive hour or an exclusive hour. Let me illustrate. I could be talking this morning about my family and say, our family day is Monday. And that's only including my family. It's excluding everyone else, right? But I could use that same word and talk about our time together this morning. Our time. That's inclusive. It includes everybody. And I think John is using the inclusive hour here. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that my joy and your joy, our joy, may be made complete. So it makes very little difference as to which word the original language used. So he's writing so that our joy will be made complete. The word complete has the idea of being full. The word joy is gladness or delight. It has the idea of satisfaction, contentment, happiness. And what is it that's going to bring John and his readers complete joy? We want to know that, right? All of us live a difficult life, don't we? Everyone in this room knows what it's like to suffer. Everyone in this room knows what it's like to face fearful times, difficult times. How do we have joy? People are dying. I mean, I say this all the time. I can't believe I'm almost 30, right? Caitlin, if she was here, she'd laugh at me. I can't believe it. Some of you are 40 and 50 and 60. You can't believe I won't say who's older. But you, you, you can't believe it. You're stunned. How did it happen? Right? It just went by so fast. How do you find joy? You're, you're going to die. Your family members are going to die. Your friends are going to die. Your dogs and cats are going to die. I know, that's a shock. You're going to die. How do you find joy in a fallen world? We need to figure it out. John's going to tell us. How? By coming into the fellowship. That's how. By coming into the fellowship. John is going to find joy in seeing other people saved, and we find our joy in knowing Christ. Communion with God. That no matter what happens, no matter how sick you get, no matter how bad or not so bad the coronavirus is, no matter how bad the restrictions are, no matter how tough your life is, you are in fellowship with God and nothing can change that. That must be the source of our joy. So for John, it begins with seeing people saved. In his second letter, he said this. He said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. See, people saved, sanctified, and growing in Christ. So John is expressing the very heart of God, isn't he? Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 10, he says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All heaven rejoices in the salvation of sinners. And that should be our attitude. We should find great joy in seeing people saved. Seeing people brought in to this fellowship. But this fellowship doesn't just or this joy doesn't just include seeing people saved, but it's our own salvation. We find joy in our own salvation. You know where true joy is found, brothers and sisters? Lasting joy. It's not found in sports, I can tell you that, because Tennessee doesn't do very well and I often don't have joy, right? It's not found in your health. It's not found in your strength. We live all of our life as if this is all that matters. We work out. We, we work hard on building up our muscles. And then we get old and it doesn't matter because they look ugly and we can't do anything. Right? Why? Why live for this life? Joy can't be found here. Joy is found in God, in Christ, in the Gospel, in our salvation. 
In Psalm 1611, the psalmist says this, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. Is that your heart? You know what it's like to meet with God in the mornings, open the Scripture and just be with the Lord and find joy in the fullness of His presence? Again, the psalmist says this in Psalm 70, verse 4, Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, and let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. That's where we find our joy. Not in the namby-pamby, watered-down, evangelical Jesus of modern evangelicalism, the one who's begging you to come or He'll cry forever, the biblical Jesus, who is glorious, who is mighty to save, who is the God-man, who bore the wrath of God, rose again and saves all of those to whom the Father has given. That Jesus, who saves to the utmost those who draw near to God through Him. That is what gives us joy. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Amazing. How do you find joy? When you know you're going to get sick and die, when you know you're when you're struggling with losing a loved one, how do you find joy? Because you have been clothed in the garments of salvation and righteousness. That's how. No matter what happens, you have Christ and the hope of eternal glory. Daniel Aiken wrote this: God is glorified in us when we find our joy in Him. God is glorified in us when we find our joy. In Him. John Piper put it this way, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. It's a kind of Christian hedonism, Piper said. It's indulging yourself in the pleasures that are found in Christ. Because you know, that's what the world does. The world wants to indulge in their sinful pleasures. Christianity isn't denying all of... as a part of that. But it's not completely denying all of our desires. It's having new desires so that we now delight in Christ and indulge in Him. That's where our pleasure is found. That's why in John 15.11, Jesus tells us that it's by abiding in Him that our joy is made complete. By abiding in Him. True joy comes only with fellowship with God and in the salvation that that fellowship produces. Mutual fellowship, mutual joy. These were the purposes of John's proclamation. He proclaimed the Gospel to see others saved, to see others have assurance of their salvation, and for them to have joy in that fellowship. And these should be the reasons we proclaim Christ. We should tell others about Jesus because we want people to be saved. And we want people to know the joy that comes with knowing the Savior. So quickly, by way of application, let me give you four principles of application here. First of all, may we believe the truth about Christ. May we believe the truth about Christ. That's the first test. If you deny the truth about Jesus, you are not a Christian. If you deny the truth about Jesus, you will not be saved. You will not go to heaven. You will be damned. That is the reality that the Scripture teaches. So we must believe the truth about Christ. He's fully God and He's fully man. But secondly, 
Let us proclaim the truth about Christ. Not only believe the truth, but proclaim the truth. May we tell other people about this great Savior. Thirdly, may we rejoice in the salvation of others. Find joy in seeing others come into the faith. And then fourthly and finally, may we find our ultimate joy in our own fellowship with the Father and His Son and in the salvation that that brings. Is that true for you, brothers and sisters? Is that where your joy is found this morning? Where is your joy? Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this joy. He writes, Joy is something very deep and profound. Something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There's only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. Joy, in other words, is the response and reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's joy. Finding your contentment, your happiness, your satisfaction in Jesus. Thinking on Him. Communing with Him in prayer and meditation upon the Scripture. That's our joy found. And then out of the overflow of that joy, you'll want to share it with others. right? you want to proclaim Christ to your neighbors. So may we, brothers and sisters, proclaim the truth about Christ that others might be saved and have that great joy. That's why John proclaims. He wants three things. He wants his readers to be saved. He wants them to be assured of their salvation. And he wants them to have the joy that comes from that assurance. Because you see, you can't have joy if you don't have confidence in your salvation, can you? If you live every moment of your life fearing that you might die and go to hell, there's no way you can have joy. In Psalm 51, the psalmist says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose the joy of it. You can lose the assurance of it. And if you don't have that assurance, you won't have that joy. The flip side is this. There are many people who do have assurance that aren't really saved. They have a false assurance. An empty assurance. But brothers and sisters, I want you to have a true and genuine and sound assurance. I want you to be confident that you're headed for glory and have good reason to believe that. And as we work our way through John's epistle and he lays out these tests and we examine our hearts in light of these tests, we can have that assurance and the joy that that assurance produces. And the first test is the doctrinal test. It's faith in the true Christ in whom we must believe, whom we must proclaim, and in whom we must find our ultimate satisfaction and joy. You have that joy this morning? If not, please talk with me afterwards. Find your joy in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have reason to rejoice. We know the world cries out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The world's rejoicing lasts only for a moment. And then sudden death comes upon them and they go to the grave and they go down to the pit of destruction and there's none to deliver them from there. None of our works could save us. None of our good deeds. None of our financial resources. The only thing that can spare us on that day is the Lord Jesus. And only those who've come to know You through faith in Your Son can have that true 
hope, assurance, and joy. So we thank You for that. I pray for those who may be here this morning that do not know Christ, that are still in their sin, that You would save them, that You would draw them to faith in the Savior. And for those of us who are in Christ, that You would help us to find our hope and our contentment, not in the world, not in the things of the world, but in the Savior and the salvation He's given to us. We thank You for that, Lord. Amen.